27th chapter of the book of Exodus. And you shall make the altar of Achaica wood. Um, altar, you want to circle that word. Five cubits long, five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. And you shall make its pails for removing its ashes, and its shovels, and its basins, and its forks, and its firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. And you shall make for it a grating of network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall put it beneath, under the edge, ledge of the altar, that the net may reach halfway up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of Achaica wood, and overlay them with bronze. And its poles shall be inserted into the rings, so that the poles should be carried on the two sides of the altar when it's carried. You shall make it hollow with planks, as it was shown to you in the mountain, so shall they make it. Now, I... Um, I said last time when we were discussing the tabernacle that I, uh, I want to do this in a way that doesn't get monotonous, but to try to uh, finish this up tonight on the tabernacle as far as the um, preparation of the tabernacle itself. To talk about the bronze altar, I think it is very important to say this again and, and to reiterate and review this point that what you have in the Old Testament are pictures or types of that which is yet to come in the final revelation of God in Christ. So that in the center of history and in the center of divine revelation is Jesus Christ who is the full and final revelation of God, the ultimate the quintessential revelation of God. So that what you have in the Old Testament is that which reveals the, the uh, coming revelation of God in Christ. And so when you find these things in the Old Testament, they must point to the, the uh, coming of Jesus and the cross event, the redemption event, because that's what the theme of the book of, Revel of uh, Exodus is is redemption. And it is absolutely um, true without uh, contradiction or question that the tabernacle and everything in it foreshadows the nature and the work of Jesus Christ. So that you've, if you want to know what Jesus is like, you understand what is involved in the tabernacle because the tabernacle is the Old Testament revelation of Jesus Christ. And everything in the tabernacle has to do with what he was and what he did, or what he is and what he does. And uh, the most significant now uh, piece of furniture in the tabernacle, other than what we've already discussed, is this brazen altar. Now the tabernacle, in a simplistic way, is divided like this. It was just... A it wasn't a large building, a portable tent. 
It was divided into three sections. This section is called the holiest place, the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, there is one um, piece of furniture. Anybody remember what that is? The Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is this box, really. It has on the top of it the lid of the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat. And there, symbolically, is the symbolical presence of God in Shekinah glory, in His, in His glory. And then there is this section called the Holy Place. And in this place, only the high priest function. We looked at the... Um, furniture that was in that place, the table of showbread, the uh, lamp stand, and the altar of incense last time. And in this entranceway right here, where everybody, only the priest here, only the high priest here once a year, but in this place right here called the tent of meeting, the Jew could come into this place and meet with God, and the way he met with God is the object of our discussion tonight. For at the entrance of this door right here was placed the largest piece of furniture. It was called the altar of brass, the brazen altar. Now I want to make some general statements about this uh, brazen altar, and, and, and then we'll get into it in, you know, in some detail. First of all, remember that in the, in the Bible, especially in, in, in Jewish literature and in Jewish history, the numbers and, and um, uh, things were highly symbolical. They all had a message. Uh, something stood for something else, and this stood for that. Well, brass stood, or brass was the um, metal that represents judgment. Brass was the metal that, that stood for judgment. Now, it is significant that this altar, which is the largest piece of furniture in the tabernacle, was made out of or covered with brass. Now, not only is it a, a metal that symbolized or stood for judgment, but it was also the metal that endured the greatest amount of um, uh, of stress or pressure, not gold, not silver, but brass. And it could endure heat greater than gold or silver. So it, it, it was a metal that was um, strong in the sense that it could endure the greatest amount of fire or pressure or heat. But the significance of brass was that it was that metal which represents or stands for judgment. You remember in the book of Numbers when um, as Moses led his people around in the wilderness, they were bitten, these people were brit bitten by fiery serpents. And what did God tell Moses to do? He told him to get a, uh, make a serpent out of brass and put it on a pole outside the camp. And everybody that looked to that serpent... Um, would be healed. Jesus later on said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now in this brass, which symbolized judgment, there is the significance of the brazen altar. It is the place where God's judgment is, is meted out or poured out. 
There's a second thing that needs to be said in general about this altar. It comes, it's, it, it, he talks about it in the context of the veil. Now I want you to look back to chapter 26 and read with me verses 31 to 33. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material, fine twisted linen, shall be made with cherubim and the work of a skillful workman. And you shall hang it on four pillars of Achaica wood overlaid with gold, their hooks also being of gold, four sockets of silver. And you shall hang up the veil under the clasp and bring in the ark of the testimony there within the veil, and the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. So that this place right here, this thing right here that separates the um, holiest place where God Himself dwells, and the rest of this is a veil that hangs there. Now, I think it's significant that He talks about the veil from the inside before He talks about the brazen altar, the place of judgment, because there is a direct correlation and a connection, and that's this, that there must be this before there can be the rending of the veil where every man can come into the presence of God. Now there's a significance in this fact that man, the veil stands for partition or separation, and the veil is there, and then the altar is mentioned, and the suggestion we'll see in just a moment that because of the altar, the veil is removed, so that this altar is the key to one's approaching God. That'll give you some idea of what the altar stands for before we get in there. Now, if you've got your uh, note deal there, we're going to look first of all at its petition, its position, its position. Now, the altar is on, in the outer court where every um, Jew can go. It's in the outer court. It would be the first object to meet the eye of the worshiper as he enters the tent of the congregation. It was called the altar of burnt offering, and to it the sinner came with his divine appointed victim, so that he would bring his sacrifice, the sinner would, and he would do that every day if he so chose. And he would come to his come to the tent of meeting with his divinely appointed victim. By that I mean the Bible is very specific in the law of Moses as to what each person is to sacrifice and what is the condition of that sacrifice. And every day they would come into the tent of meeting with their uh, victim to offer it on the altar. There was a fire burning on this altar day and night. The book of Leviticus chapter 6 verse 13 makes it very clear that an altar is to remain burning on that altar, and a fire is to remain burning on that altar all the time. So that on this altar, smoking every day and blood-stained every day, these people would these guilty Hebrews, these Jews would come with their sacrifice and place it on this altar so that their sin could be covered. I uh, noticed one of our kids has a t-shirt tonight, has got you covered, and there's Jesus on the cross, 
is exactly what is happening here, is that they brought these sacrifices every day because they had sinned. And because of this sacrifice, they, they were, um, uh, uh, their conscience was appeased and they felt like that, that they could approach God. Now, I want you to take your Bible. We're going to use the Bible some tonight and turn to the book of Hebrews. In order to understand um, the uh, Old Testament, I think a person needs to become acquainted with the book of Hebrews. And in order to understand the book of Hebrews, he needs to understand the Mosaic law, Mosaic system. And it works both ways. And I'm going to read from chapter 9. Chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, and then some verses out of chapter 10. So we're just going to uh, uh, read along together. You need to put up your finger back here in Exodus chapter 27, and let's do it together. From chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now every Jew, when he read this epistle called Hebrews, knew exactly what he was talking about. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from works that are dead to serve the living God. Now, turn to chapter 10, and let's read beginning verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, be, can never by the same sacrifices year by year which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. That is to say, now the word perfection there, perfect means to obtain that which you were meant to be, to, uh, to reach the place where you were meant to be. And he said, you can, they brought these sacrifices on the day of the atonement, year after year, and they brought these daily sacrifices day after day after day, and they soaked these, this altar with blood, and it didn't enable them to be what they were meant to be. It was totally uh, inadequate to accomplish what they needed for it to accomplish. You follow me? Otherwise, would they have ceased to be offered because the worshipers having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. What he's saying is the only thing it did for us is just reminded us of our sin. It didn't remit sin, just reminded us that we were sinners or are sinners. For it is impossible... For the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
Now skip down to verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now watch this magnificent thought. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool. For by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And there's that word perfected again. What he's saying is this, that because of his sacrifice, man was able to obtain what he was meant to be. He was, he was made to become what he, was, he needed to become, what he was meant to be. Now, um, and what he, what, he's, what he says in essence is this, is that the only way that one can approach God and ever be uh, sanctified, that is, set apart from his sin and become all that he was meant to be and needs to be, is through the blood of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, once and for all. Now, Whatever else this teaches, it teaches this, is that it is only through the blood of Jesus can man ever approach God. Now there's an, um, it, you know, that runs throughout the Old Testament. Um, first time uh, Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated from God and they hid themselves in the garden. And God found them in the garden and they were covered themselves with fig leaves and they were unacceptable to God like that now that they had sinned. So what he did was he made them a covering out of the skin of animals in order for them to be acceptable to God after they had sinned. There had to be the shedding of blood of an innocent victim. You turn on over a page or two in the book of Genesis, it tells about Cain and Abel and Abel was this man of the field, and he brought his sacrifice to God. It's amazing that there had been no record of anybody sacrificing to God in worship before. They just did it naturally. And Abel brought his sacrifice of the field, an animal that was slain. And the scripture says that Abel was, his sacrifice was more acceptable to God and because Abel was more acceptable. Well, what made him acceptable? The blood of the innocent victim. And the only way that man can approach God is through the blood of Jesus Christ, once and for all sacrificed. So what is the meaning of this altar right here? That's where we're getting to, and that's where we want to be. The meaning of this altar, this is a foreshadowing, a typing, of that place where there was a, the ultimate sacrifice made, and what was that? Where was that? Somebody answer me. The cross of Jesus Christ. Now at the cross of Jesus Christ, two things occurred that come right out of Jewish history. First is that God judged sin once and for all. Um, this past week I, uh, 
went into classrooms with these little children and went on one-on-one with them about how to be saved, you know, in every class from third grade through sixth grade. I shared on Wednesday night that uh, it's always one of the hardest things for me to do is to do this thing on, on, uh, during Bible school, go, go in there in these small groups and talk to these children. First, one thing is, is that I don't want to do something that would cause them to make a decision. They didn't know what they were doing. The second thing is, is that I want to be able to communicate this in a way they can understand it, you know. And uh, you try it sometime. That's why everybody says when, the children, when their children go to them, I'm, I'm, I'd like to know how to be saved. They say, well, we'll go talk to the preacher. I mean, you know how hard that is. You know what I'm saying? But I've noticed this when, we, when I talk to kids about what it means to be lost, that is breaking God's rules, that everybody understands that when you break God's rules, that the consequence of breaking God's rules is to be punished. And if God has rules, and He has a right to have rules because He rules the universe, he, makes, he made the world, it's His, so He's got a right to set His rules. And when we break God's rules, just like when you break any rule, you have to, you have to suffer the consequence. Now what this says is, this blood that was there day after day, and the book of Hebrews said that there came this one who made the final sacrifice, so you never have to make another sacrifice. Priests went out of business, is this, is that somehow God judged our sin in somebody else at the cross, at the altar, sacrifice. And that somebody else is Jesus. It's called the substitutionary doctrine of the atonement. That God took our sin and placed it on Jesus Christ and judged it there. So that this is the this stands for the cross of Jesus Christ. And the and the amazing thing about this is is that Jesus is both the antitype of the sacrifice and the one who makes it. Now watch this. He's not only the lamb without spot or blemish that is altered finally on the, on the altar once and for all, but he's the priest who makes the sacrifice there. That's what the author of the book of Hebrews says. So that when Jesus came at Calvary, he came bearing, bringing himself to the altar. He came placing himself on the altar. And he voluntarily chose to take the judgment of God upon himself for you and for me. And that's the meaning of this altar here. Now, I'm not sure that these Jews understood it fully, but they should have is that when they brought their sacrifice to that altar, every time they did it, they would put their hands on the head of the altar. It's called the, uh, you know, it's the scapegoat idea. And they would put their hand on that, on that uh, victim and, 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 and transfer their sin upon it. And then they'd place it on this altar and cut its throat if it was a lamb or a heifer or whatever it was. And all of that, was an event that was looking forward to the time when they could bring their sin and place it on the one final sacrifice. Someone who was yet to come, the Savior of the world. Now, I want us to look back now. You got your, well, go back to Exodus chapter 27 and look at the utensils of this altar. First of all, he said you're to have these pails. Now, these pails were for the removing of the ashes of the offering. 
the removing of the ashes. Leviticus chapter 6, verses 10 and 11 talks more about this. Now, if this altar is an altar where there is a fire burning, it consumes all of it and the ashes are all that's left. And these ashes were caught in a pail and transferred to somewhere else and it speaks of the completeness of the offering. There's nothing left here. It's totally consumed. Totally consumed. One day a teenage boy had a little time on his hands. His mother went out to do business or go to the market. And so he thought he'd just read a little book or spend a little time, you know, reading a book and, and killing time until his mother returned. He knew that his mother was deeply religious and most of these books would be sermons and all these sermons have a message at the front and a story and then a conclusion. And as he's reading this book, it was a sermon, he kept reading a statement, the finished work of Christ, the finished work of Christ. And he asked himself, what is it, why does he keep talking about the finished work of Christ? Then he remembered what Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He asked himself, if the work of Jesus is finished and everything is completed for, man's, for salvation, what do I need yet to do? And all of a sudden it dawned on him, nothing. And he got down on his knees and he received Jesus Christ into his life. That's how Lofton Hudson, the founder of the, Inland, the China Inland Mission, was saved. Now what these ashes represent in this pale is a symbol of the fact that this sacrifice was a total, complete sacrifice. By the way, when you turn over to the book of Romans and it says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, he's using that same word and he's saying this, that when you give your life to Jesus Christ, you are to give your life lock, stock, and barrel in totality to Him. Every aspect of your life committed to Him. Then there is in this, not just the pail, but the shovels. And these shovels were for the collecting of the embers. There were these basins, receptacles of the blood, and these, what he calls forks. Now these forks are really called flesh hooks in other places. One of the best sermons I've ever heard was a sermon by uh, Stephen Olford called The Flesh Hooks. And he gave this illustration. He said at the, at the altar of brass, these flesh hooks hung. And, and one on each side, kind of like if you remember from, uh, you've seen pictures of people where they used to uh, haul a big chunk, you know, block ice, you know, and they'd hook these um, blocks of ice with these hooks and, and uh, maybe hay balers, you know, know something about these hooks. And, and Stephen Alford said they'd hang these hooks on the altar and, and as, these, as the sacrifice would burn, sometimes in the burning of the sacrifice, it would slip away from the altar. And the priest would take these flesh hooks and, and pull the sacrifice back up to the center of the fire till it was totally consumed. And he used the analogy that discipline and determination are the flesh hooks that keep us on the altar of so total sacrifice. So our lives 
can be consumed by Him. Now there is a covering for this brazen altar. And I want you to get your Bible. Let's turn to Numbers chapter 4. The book of Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And read with me um, verses 13 and 14. Then they shall take away the ashes from the altar, spread a purple cloth over it. Did you take a pencil, underline that? A purple cloth over it. They, they shall also put on it all its utensils by which they serve in connection with it, the fire pan, pans, the forks and shovels, the basins, all the utensils of the altar. And they shall spread a cover of porpoise skin over it and insert its poles. There is a purple cloth they draped over this altar when it was not in use. Now somebody tell me tonight what the uh, color purple, what color is, what does that stand for? It's the royal, yeah, it's the king's color. Um, Every year when they play the, uh, when they have the tennis match in, in England, what's that called? Huh? Wimbledon. They always have this purple and green color. Beautiful. Because the color purple is the color of regality. It's the royal color. It's the, it's the color of kings. Now, does it seem strange to you that in the, in the tabernacle, the only, the only piece of furniture that has a covering is the brazen altar where sacrifices are made. It does seem a little strange. I can tell it you hadn't given it a, might have given it a whole lot of thought, but maybe you will. The only piece of furniture that has a covering is the brazen altar, and that coloring is purple. It's the color of the king, royal color. Now whatever else this means, it means this, that the glory of God is in the altar of sacrifice. The glory of God is in the altar of sacrifice. Now Paul said it like this, he said, I've determined that I will, I will, I will I'll not boast, I'll not glory, except in the cross of Jesus Christ. For the one place where God's glory is most demonstrated is in the place of His sacrifice. Why do you think that song, The Old Rugged Cross, is so, uh, such a long-time favorite? It, um, the, the fact is, is that the most glorious thing in all of life, the most glorious thing in all of history, is the cross of Jesus. Now I want you to turn to the 10th, 12th chapter of the book of John. Let's look at the 12th chapter of John's Gospel. And we'll read beginning at verse 20 and, and following. Now there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast... These therefore came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, 
began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came, and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, Now look at this. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you didn't know anything about the Bible and you stopped right there, you'd probably think that that probably what he's talking about is that God is going to vindicate in some way His Son Jesus by some voice from heaven or some lightning or whatever. But here's how He's going to be glorified. Look at this. Truly I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. And immediately upon saying it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified, he talks about his death. Because the glory of God, I repeat, is in the death of Jesus. Now look at verse 28. Father, glorify thy name, he says. There came therefore a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. How is God going to glorify himself? Where is this... uh, Uh, language of the king going to be understood at this place of sacrifice. The most glorious place in the world is at the cross of Jesus. For it is at the cross of Jesus that our sin is judged and our sin is remitted, is removed. Now I want to point out one other thing then we're out of here. I'd like for you to turn to the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah. It's amazing how all this fits together. It does fit together. The sixth chapter of Isaiah. And here's this story of Isaiah's vision of God at the death of the king, King Uzziah, his friend. He said, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Now we've, trans- we, we've, we've traveled from the tabernacle in the wilderness to the temple, permanent dwelling place, but the same, the same structure, the same um, uh, furniture is in the temple, is in the tabernacle. And so he's in the temple now, and, he's, and he has this vision of God. He said, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said... Woe is me, for I am ruined. And that that is an oracle, a negative oracle. He's pronouncing judgment upon himself. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. Now, I would imagine, I would have thought that he would say, I'm a man of an unclean heart. I'm a man of an unclean life. And he brings judgment on himself. But he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, because... What we say reflects what we are in our heart. And so he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. Now what altar did he get that coal from, that, that burning ember? He got it from this altar because there was a fire burning on this altar day and night, seven days a week. And so this angel went to this altar where there was this fire, this altar of judgment, this altar of glory, and he takes a coal from that altar, flies back to where Isaiah is down groveling on the ground, writhing in, 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 in the guilt of his sin, and he puts that coal on his mouth. I can remember my preacher when I was a kid preaching the sermon from this, and I thought, man, that must have really hurt. It did. I can imagine he screamed in torture. But what he was doing was, is that he was taking from the altar, the brazen altar, the place where sin is judged and remitted, and he is cleansing our life with it. I want to conclude with this idea, and I want you to hear this. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, man's sin is removed, is remitted. But that's not just, that's not the end of it. When his sin is removed through his faith in the finished work of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus is applied to us. Now if you could picture this, if there is a book that contains the sin of man, my sin, what happens when we're saved is, is that God goes to that book, to the page that has my name on it, takes my sin off that page and transfers it over to the page that has Jesus' name on it. He takes my sin and puts it on Jesus. That's good, that's glorious in itself, but it's not all. At the same time, he takes the righteousness of Jesus and transfers that over to me. And that's what is symbolized here in the coal from this altar. Our lives, our heart, our relationship is cleansed forever. Now positionally tonight, you are everything you were meant to be. Positionally, you have been perfected and sanctified through the work of the sacrifice of Jesus. The trouble is, is that we just need to start living what we already are. Now the application is this. We need to stop emphasizing externals. And we need to start focusing on internals. And we need to stop ex uh, emphasizing bringing our sacrifices to God and doing works. And we need to start emphasizing what is accomplished for us in the finished work of Jesus and our faith in that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we stand amazed at what you have accomplished for us in Christ. I pray if there are any here tonight who have not come to know Jesus Christ, have not come to God through the faith in His finished work, that they might do that by faith, trusting in what Jesus has done for them at the cross, at the brazen altar, at the place of judgment. For I pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Now, I want us to have an opportunity tonight, if there are any here, maybe have never 
accepted Christ or maybe you need to come and make a decision like we're, the decisions made this morning. Maybe to join our church or recommit yourself to the Lord. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.